All right, folks, we're back here. Landmine Radio, special episode. We're here in Juneau, in the Capitol, with Representative Gary Knopp. How are you, Gary Knopp? I'm good, Jeff. Thanks glad, for coming. Glad glad, uh, glad to be here. I'm glad you invited me. We're in your office. We have a really nice view, a little cloudy, but great view of, of, uh, of Juneau here. Yeah, we do. And actually, it's a little foggy, but the first time you see the top of the mountain range here for a few days. So it's... When I walked in, I said, I'm looking for Representative Knopp, and they said, down the hall. And uh, that was cop, Chuck Cop. Yeah. How often does that happen? Uh, you know, you don't, you can't imagine how many times I get people walk in my office and say, we got a three o'clock appointment and, and we're looking at the calendar. No, we don't. Yeah, we do. We called, made it a week ago. And rep, <laughs> rep Cop's office, yeah, down on the first floor. <laughs> I mean, it's, just, it's funny because it's literally one more letter. Yeah, yeah, it, exactly. it sounds. Yeah, it happened frequently last year. It was a, it was a frequent occurrence. Uh, is, so is it? People say Knopp. Is it Knopp or is it Knopp? It's Knopp. It's Knopp. I pronounce the K. Like okay. Knick. Just think of Knick, Knopp. Oh, there, right? there, there it is. Yeah. There, That's a good, right good segue. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad I'm glad you uh, agreed to do the podcast. Uh, I met you a while ago, but we had a discussion at the Resource Development Council in November, and then I realized that you have a background in the oil industry. And one of the companies I used to work for, you kind of knew the guy that ran it so well yeah i did i mean i i had 20 years in oil and gas uh, with arco when arco alaska was here i I started out as a contractor in the oil field and uh early 80s very early 80s started out up there on the slope working as a contractor uh contract millwright and then uh, arco picked me up in uh mid 80 85 i believe it was in cook inlet so i spent a couple years offshore on the platforms and then a little later, still I still call it mid 70s, 77, 88, I transferred back up to the slope and retired in 2000 when uh, British Petroleum bought Arco. So I, Were you part of the, buy, the buyout? I was, I was part of the buyout. I had 18, 20 years under my belt. And, uh, and because uh, the company, so they, Arco for years had had an enhanced early retirement program, but because of the criteria, I was never eligible until they sold to a foreign company. Then all the rules went out the window and I finally met eligibility and took an early package in 2000. So what'd you do in the oil industry, oil field industry? You know, mostly mechanical. I did mechanical for a number of years, but I was also in management for a number of years as well. I was a, a well, I was a maintenance supervisor for the Wells Group uh, out there for a number of years. And then I did a job swap and was downhole wireline supervisor for a uh, number of years. So you were and, on, the, on the drilling side? Uh, drilling support side. Never did any drilling myself, but drilling support side and the maintenance side, the Wells Service Group. Two divisions. It was uh, maintenance and and, uh, and then well support, and then uh, we had a well. Actually, a uh, uh, gentleman you worked for, one we mentioned earlier, is a guy I did the job swap with for a couple of years. Yeah, no. When I mentioned the company, the you, yeah. I mean the company that been around for forty five years. So basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. everybody knows them. Yeah. Um, so. so you retired in two thousand. You said two thousand. So you got elected in twenty sixteen for the first time, right? Yeah, I believe that's correct. So what'd you do? 2016. What'd you do for those 15, 16 well, years? Well, I did, you know, a dozen years of local government service between uh, serving on AML board and the borough assembly for a number of years, two years as assembly president there. And you're from uh, Kenai, right? Kenai, yep. So I, uh, so in that time, uh, first ran for the borough assembly and uh, won that seat, did uh, did six years. The last two of them, six years, was as the assembly president. And uh, in that in that first six years, I spent uh, a member of the Alaska Municipal League board, and then also served on the board of equalization for the. What got you? 
What got you initially interested in politics or public service? You know, I didn't have an interest. I had no desire and no inclination. <laughs> it was never a passing thought. Th- those are the best people who should, those are the people who should be in it. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was never, but I had people come to me. We had an open seat on the assembly, my district. They had one candidate that uh, they didn't really want. And a number of people come to me and said, you need to run for this seat. We need to have another choice. And and so I, you know, at that time I thought, well, that yeah, I, I can do that. It's pretty yes or no or black and white, you know, life, you know, shouldn't be too difficult. And and about two weeks into that first first uh, time on the assembly, a month into it, I thought, man, my world went gray, you know. I never knew there were so many sides of an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you start debating an issue, you, you look through a pretty narrow set of glasses. And you, you were on the borough assembly or the city assembly? Bur- borough assembly. How many people are... Uh- Nine, nine assembly members. Nine and assembly members. Is that the mayor is elected separately or part of the part of the? No, he's elected separately. Okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, assembly does three-year terms. The mayor does four-year terms, and we have term limits now. Didn't it? Let's see. When did we impose term limits? I don't remember. But anyway, they went into effect. Uh, so, so yeah, they went into effect, and I served two terms, six years, and was termed out. Set out a term, and then was reelected for a third term, and was currently serving when I ran for this seat. So. So what got you interested in running for the legislature? Well, and so I ran for this seat in 2012 when I was termed out. I'm thinking, I'm, I say in 2012, uh, and it was a grassroots campaign. I never See, ran for a statewide office. So I recall that because I, I ran for the state Senate in 2012, and I remember, now that you say that, I remember your name. Now. Yeah, I believe it was 2012, and so I lost by about 300 votes in then, and so, you know, and, and at the time I had an interest because I just coming off six years with the Assembly, Alaska Municipal League Board, Alaska Municipal League Board, get that out. And uh, and I was very intimately familiar with a lot of people in Juneau and the support people and the issues at the time going on. Actually, at that time, it's interesting uh, when I look back through the uh, election uh, pamphlet that the uh, Division of Elections sent out and things I campaigned on in 2012 when oil prices were starting to rise and I talked about unsustainability and needing to get this in check and we're going to be dealing with this down the road, uh, you know, because we were starting to spend like drunk sailors and I I saw this day coming. So so I lost that campaign and I got, so 2016 rolls around and I'm running again and I'm and I'm going back and reviewing my my uh, candidate statement in that magazine, and and lo and behold, here we are dealing with exactly what I was talking about four years prior. So, I, I said the I ran in 2012, and I remember saying it's crazy to balance our budget at 100 dollars oil. Yeah. And I said the other oil companies forecast on seven sixty or seventy. Yeah. And I said we just can't afford. You know, this is going to come down. And of course, we saw what happened when the price of oil crashed it, it maintained it maintained a lot longer than i thought it would you know but uh, we could see this day coming i thought it was only a couple more years down the road but we, we went for quite an extended period of time but would we get up to 130 dollar barrel oil at one time 120 uh, 2000, 2008 at the peak it was one over one i think it was 140 yeah, 140 yeah. So, almost 150 yeah that's so. when we got the big mega pfd and right palin added a couple grand extra yep yep for energy that was back when a three thousand dollar pfd seemed incredible yeah now it just seems like expected yeah right right oh absolutely because so. it was 1200 and she added 2000 and that yeah. was in 2008 i remember Called that. It an energy credit or something didn't she wouldn't it was Ener- yeah it was energy cre- yeah and then the, the legislature like rubber state you know yeah. of course they're gonna say yeah. Sure. sure sure yeah so well so it's your second term and you are kind of the talk of alaska politics you've been for the last month um the republicans one, you know, kind of majority of seats, but two of them are 
with the Democrats. They've stuck with the Democrats, Representatives Ledoux and Stutz. Um, there was 21, and it was very fragile, and a lot of people who observed noticed that. And you, about a month ago, I guess, decided to say, I'm not going to be a part of a group like that because it's... Anyways, maybe talk a little bit about why you did that. And, you know, it's, the session starts tomorrow, and there's still a lot of yeah. uncertainty in the... You know, it's... Uh, so why I did that is, is uh, exactly what you talked about. You know, the sheer number 21, 0% zero percent chance of probability of success with them small numbers. Everybody has to agree on every single issue. Walk in lockstep. On policy issues, on budget issues, you can be no variance from that to get to get the only constitutional mandate done that we have to do is to pass that budget. It takes 21 votes, and and uh, and you just will not get there. Uh, and and so every single legislator has veto power. Every single legislator has got veto power on every single issue. Uh, but it's important that the public doesn't get to have these discussions and they don't get to hear all the conversations. And I could see this divide coming down the road when you uh, start talking policy issues and you talk to the Anchorage delegation and you talk to the Fairbanks delegation and Matt Sue delegation and then uh, various members from around the state, South Central and, and Interior. And, and, and you look at, uh, if you had them private conversations and you look at what they're going to support and what they're adamantly not going to support, you could see this big divide coming down the road. And the worst thing that we could have done is come down here knowing that we were going to fall apart in the middle of session. We were going to implode. There was no doubt about that. And uh, and I'll tell you, in, in all honesty, Jeff, we, we recognized this last year, and we talked about this last year. The incumbent members talked about this need for a coalition and thought they were, I thought, in, in you know, a couple times over the summer when I'd run into the legislators, said, are you working on a, an organization? Yes, we're working on one. Yes, we're working on one. Well, we get to after the election, and here's what we got, an organization that has no chance of success, you know. And so uh, I said, well, what happened to the conversations? Well, we're going to organize. We're going to go down to Juneau. Some Democrats will come join us, and then we're going to get rid of a couple problem members, and, you know, and we're going to go forward. Well, if you had any conversations with any of the current House coalition at that time, they resoundingly said, no, we're not coming. There's no chance. You know? I think— Based on some folks I've talked to and kind of just being and observing that press conference the day after the election, I think that probably was the single factor that solidified the other 19 people. Because it was just, it was, it was pretty it, wild. It was not quite ready, were we? Huh? It was not quite ready. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was something else. I mean, yeah. I remember the funniest part was, was Nat Hers was there kind of, he was by the door. I don't know if you guys didn't see that. He was kind of joking. He was, because you guys were in a door and there was another room. Yeah, yeah. And, um... Somebody made a comment. They said, uh, "Oh, that, about Nat, because he was kind of trying to peer in or listen in, kind of a joke. I think he was joking, but he said that's yeah. your loose unit." Yeah, and I said, "We got twenty-one more behind the door." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, but, uh, but you know, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. If you look at the current, you know, the I guess the former House majority, the mostly Democrats, they had twenty-two, and then they had twenty-one yeah. after yeah. Keto. Sure. And I remember, not, I wasn't here, but you talk, I talked to people, and you saw the the tension in the end of the session with the budget, and then you saw. When Guttenberg got sick one time, Representative Guttenberg, Representative Svonholtz got sick. Yeah, well, absolutely. And it just was very slim. There was, I mean, I think the stress level for those folks in the last couple of years. You know, we were debating big issues last year, and the opinions varied a lot, as as they should. And that was made the case for my argument. You know, there's no way we can succeed with 21. I mean, 
Ideally, for me, 28 or 30 is a good number. If everybody participates, that's probably even better. I said the larger coalition you have, the better chances of success, the better product you will get. That's know. how it was for, I mean, under Chenault for a long time there. Was, but that included, you know, like Bryce Edgman and Neil Foster and Bob here. I mean, included the rural Democrats. But, but, but let's talk about the difference in that coalition versus the one I'm proposing today. You had a Republican-controlled House, and you had a few few Bush Democrats come join them. It's been history. Historically, 20-plus years we've been doing that, maybe longer, you know. Uh, and we were predominantly red in them days. We're no longer red. We're purple. We're purple, you know. And the numbers are now bounced, 1920, 1921, you know, 2020, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. That's where we're at, and we're very fragile on this side of the aisle. And they saw that, and, and you know, and they didn't particularly want to be part of an organization that was going to fail either. So it took a large, uh, it took a, a, a large number of them to come across the aisle to do that. So, but the but the fact is, it wasn't a true coalition. It was a few D's joining a few R's. You call it working together. I mean, yeah, it's a coalition, but you're still minority inside a majority group, you know. And that's the reality of that. The proposed coalition, the, 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 the recent one, the Democrat one you're talking about, any past coalition. Uh, is what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Any past coalition. If you really want to have a true coalition, there is no slant to either party. Every side gets equal equal billing, you know, and uh, and that's how you make members happy. That's how members can be happy. And, you, you know, and, and those sitting in the minority truly are shut out and not really representing the people that elected them to do so. So, uh, so that's the difference, and that's where we're struggling trying to organize this coalition is that we're trying to make it a truly balanced where each side feels like they're equal players. There are some who don't want that. They just demand to be in control, and that's that's kind of where we're at today. And Have you heard from any people since you made that decision in your district, or any Republican type operatives, or you know, I uh, in a sense, yes and no. I mean, if you read Facebook, which I try not to do too much unless I need some entertainment value, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I uh, there, you know, you get a dozen haters on there. A lot of them just don't understand the situation and the conversations. I have had three or four who've actually taken efforts to reach out and understand what I'm doing, understand the dynamics of the decision. And when you explain it to them, they say, well, you know, that does kind of make sense. But so that's, that's the naysayers. But I can tell you that uh, in my phone, I've got 300 voice messages, text messages, emails, uh, supporting what I'm doing. Now their party affiliation, I have no idea, but I can tell you that I think the public by and large is sick of the partisan politics because it's not getting the job done. So how much do you think, you know the hesitation on other Republicans. How much do you think um, what Tuckerman Babcock did when he was chair, going after Representative Stutz and Seaton and Ledoux? How much do you think does that factor into people saying, "Well, I want to do it, but I don't want to become some attack," you know, don't, attack piece? For- yeah, you know, and and I think they're concerned about that. I think they're concerned about that. But uh, you know, as I've stated in earlier uh, press conferences, is that you know. When the party started uh, lobbying against their own members, it was because they jumped ships and they shifted the balance of power, you know. And in a sense, I agree with the party's dislike of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but working across party lines to get the job done is a whole separate issue. You don't sacrifice. Uh, so people are concerned about what the party may do, but they're also concerned because they campaigned as Republican and the people elected them were Republicans. And, uh, you know, and so they they are concerned about being perceived as a traitor or turncoat or whatever the case may be. And my argument for that is, I said, 
you are elected based on your principles and your values and what you tell your constituents when you're campaigning. And that's what that's what they elected you on, whether it's conservative or liberal, whatever side you're on. But at the same time, they expect you to get the job done, work with whoever it takes to do that. That's what people are tired of. And I said, because you work across party lines does not mean that you're sacrificing your principles and your values, what you stand for. And and legislators need to understand that. I mean, it's a tough decision. It's a tough road for them. I understand that. But the reality it is, you are who you are. That didn't change, you know. And uh, and so working across party lines to get the job done, perfectly good with that. I'm just not going to sacrifice what I stand for. So tomorrow's the first day of the swearing in and the first day of the session. Um, do you have any sense of, I mean, so far there's not been any announcement of any kind of... There's been zero announcements. I have no idea what was going to happen tomorrow. We're going to uh, call the House to order. We're going to swear in some people and... At that point, I don't know if anything else will happen. Uh, Jeff, I haven't I, heard a word. I think, and I was trying to research this and read about it, the last time this happened was, I think, 1981, where there was uh, not an organization, uh, clear pretty organization. Pretty close to that time frame, yeah, 81, I believe. Yeah. So if there's, and I did a podcast with uh, Lieutenant Governor Meyer there about 10 days ago, and we talked about, there was some, for a while, some people had some speculation that if there was a deadlock, he could kind of take take over, and he, he's... He said that's not the case. He can't vote. He, he can basically oversee the selection of a speaker pro tem. Uh, uh, and I think maybe do a pledge and do a prayer. But And that's about it. His powers are very limited. You know, can't even receive messages from the governor or anything along them lines. My understanding is right in, right in line with yours uh, in my research as well. Uh, even, a, even a speaker pro tem would have a little bit more authority than what lieutenant governor does. So can a speaker pro tem, and I don't know the answer to this, but can, can they receive messages from the governor? Uh, you know, there has been, there is, uh, it, it's very ambiguous. Uh, it, it, nothing in hard and fast rules about the Speaker pro tem. So I think it's kind of the will of the body the, at the, that point, you the, know. The question is, and, and I've written, written about this, is uh, Sharon Jackson was appointed to fill Nancy Dahlstrom's seat. And there's basically questions about if she can even get confirmed until there's uh, some sort of organization. Yeah, and I think the Speaker has to do that. So a Speaker pro tem could do that, but I don't think Lieutenant Governor can do that. Uh, I don't think he can entertain that motion. Somebody has to make the motion to confirm her, and uh, I don't think the the Lieutenant Governor can do that. So it has to be a Speaker pro tem or permanent Speaker to do that. So So is is there any, I mean, the odds of this getting solved on the floor are probably almost zero, right? I I think so. I think these discussions are going to go on for a while, you know. I would hope that we would figure out a way to confirm her. I don't know what that path is. What about just in general of, of not, if, if there's not a clear organization by, you know, the members, is there a chance they could nominate a speaker and do a secret ballot? I mean, is that is that possibility? Or? You know, I, I just, I don't think until you agree to an organization that the votes are there, period. You got to have, you got to have the votes. You got to have 21 votes to elect like the speaker, you know. And I think until agreement is reached on an organization, you will not see that. So looking forward, this is obviously might be uh, hanging around for a while, this issue, but um, past that, once they get organized, I'm sure eventually they'll have to. What do you see as the the major, you know, people are talking about dividend and the budget and the crime. I think maybe Anchorage more is a crime issue. I don't know, is Peninsula much crime? Or? You know, we have small property crimes. You know, we're all concerned I'm concerned, and I think a, a lot of people around the state are concerned about the pretrial release component of SB 91, where mm-hmm. we're, we're letting too many people out of jail. 
and not scrutinizing that hard enough when it's pretty obvious that they should be maintained and that scoring point system that they're using. Although we did some fixes to that last year, uh, it still seems to be a, a failing point. So uh, we're concerned about it overall. You know, people generally advocate for tougher tougher penalties for crimes and, and not letting them out. And they think that's more of a deterrent than trying to uh, – than, than trying this other re- rehabilitation type mm-hmm. stuff. But, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that prompted SB 91 was the cost of incarceration and where where, uh, where the budget was going in, re- in regards to corrections. And so that was one of the attempts, you know, to, to fix some of that and uh, stop the recidivism rate. But uh, I'm not sure it's working out real well. And and so I think it's, uh, it's uh, going to be... a a big topic of conversation. I know it is. It's a, it's a, one of the top three priorities this year is the crime reform bill. And this one will be debated heavily. Well, I, know, I know for sure. I mean, I, I think there's different causes and there's, you can look at all these different you know factors, uh, but yeah, Anchorage, I mean, I've been there since 2004 and it's, it's, I never had a, until, you know, recently worry about like leaving my car running or everybody I know, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people I know have had their car stolen. I mean, many people I know have had their car stolen or broken into. It seems yeah. like a common type yeah activity now whereas well, and, before and, it was and and you know it's uh it, it's true it is a common activity and and what's even got more common is the repeat offenders doing the same thing time and time again even after just a short period mm-hmm. of being caught you know and so we think a car theft is getting to be uh, a daily occurrence and and just kind of the course of business but the fact of the matter is for a lot of people that's uh it's they struggle to buy a car and have a car that functions well, any anybody even two income families I, you lose a car and that's that's a pretty major hit in, you, you uh, mentioned AML I don't know if you know do you know Sabrina Combs or Palmer City Council I do not so she's she's a friend of mine and she uh, her husband had a car stolen I guess like a month ago and they mm-hmm. could her truck his truck stolen they couldn't find it they had to mm-hmm. get a new one and then they found it it was pretty close to the house somebody had discovered it in a in a ditch or you know in the woods and it was it was just totally gutted. I mean, it was every the windows were broken, everything was taken out of it, and and it was I think about five miles from their house, and it's just, yeah, it's just it's just something that people have kind of gotten used to, and you know, it, it frustrates me that it's not something we've been able to fix or resolve. Uh, you know, and uh, there are some people talking about far more serious penalties for uh, just car theft and by itself, and it may be a better deterrent. You know, it's uh public needs to realize legislators need to realize that losing the car is a massive impact on no. many, many families you know but then you talk about it too you talk about the correct you know the incarceration and you look at the goose creek and you look at the cost of incarceration for a person for a, i mean it's, it's really hard it's a tough one to how do you where do you balance it and figure out what what the, what's worth the cost of incarcerating yeah. somebody yeah. It, it is exactly right it, it it's uh you know what, what is the cost of incarceration you know I mean, because i mean it's just not the the maintenance and the upkeep, but it's also the services you need to provide to them as far as health care and other things when they get into the system. You know, there's a lot of costs people don't see mm-hmm. and recognize. And, it, and it, so it's not all just in the DOC budget that you see. You know, it, it, it gets pretty widespread. So. so what about the the other big issue? Obviously, the dividend is the probably the, going to be the big one. Yep. It's, it's going to be maybe the bigger than the budget, maybe bigger than the budget issue, you know. Uh I, I don't know. I, I'm waiting to see what the governor truly rolls out. You know, for me, I think it's foolish to have a billion-dollar deficit and to try to fulfill a campaign promise and put another billion dollars onto the billion dollars yeah. you don't already have. I think that's somewhat ludicrous, and I'm not going to get in a debate and argument because everybody says that's my money, you guys have it, pay mm-hmm. it, you know. But for those who are opposing income tax, I don't think there's a faster way to drive you to one. That's exactly right. You're, you know, uh, you know you're, Especially you're, if you put it in the Constitution. 
Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, and I've I've said publicly that I'm, I won't support a, an amendment to PFD dividends in the Constitution, primarily because that's not what our Constitution is designed to do. That's not what it's for. You know, that's a roadmap for us to live by, not to insert everything that you want or don't want or don't like. You know, well, just, I heard somebody just... say, I don't know, I forget who it was, but it was a while ago, and regarding all this dividend stuff, and, and they say people always reference and talk about the owner state, and they say, well, if you're an owner state, you know, you should act like it because. Because because you worked in oil and gas, no, no company ever hands out a dividend when they're losing money. Sure, when they're in the hole, billions of dollars, they don't they don't go and hand out the the uh, shareholders a big dividend. Yeah, and that's kind of what we what we, a lot of people seem to want here. Oh, oh absolutely, you know, and and it, it's a it's an interesting conversation because you know owner state, it's a you know the resource belongs to the people. You stole my mineral rights, you know. We give up mineral rights before statehood. You never had them. Huh. Most of us weren't born in that time frame, number one. Number two, a lot of them moved up from here. You know, you, you, that, that's not, an, that's not, you're not entitled to that. You didn't have that to start with. It was never taken from you. You know, they call it a tax. You know, to me, a tax is something that you earned for and people are taking a percentage. You, know, you worked yeah. for it. You invested it. It's a dividend. You know, uh, this simply huh. is not the same case. Uh, and, and it's ironic that, uh, Give me, give me, give me my money. But when the state has hard times or has a trouble, you, the public doesn't want to share in any of that. Yep. Right? They don't want to share in any of that. They just want the good end, not and the I, bad end. You know, I understand that. I'm, I'm, I'm. I think the biggest argument is, is you know, lower income people. I understand it affects them more. And but what, what's going to affect them even, even more than that is yep. if the economy tanks because yep. of because of you yep. know we're out of money, which I think there's only a few billion dollars left in the so the reserve account. I want to give you a, a, a great example that makes me struggle with these decisions on this. So uh, I was here and got my first permanent fund check. What was that? 82, Jeff, do you remember? 84? Got I think the first yeah, thousand dollars. 82, 81, 82. And I bought my first piece of property. I had a wife, two kids. I bought my first piece of property with that $4,000 and started building the house out of pocket. That dividend helped me get going. I mean, I no way I had that kind of money for the down payment. So a thousand bucks in eighty one or eighty two that that would have been well know, I had a lot more than thousand yeah, bucks. I mean today. I had four thousand dollars. I paid eighteen thousand dollars for the acre of land and and that was the down payment and and uh, so it helped me get started and I and, and you know and I don't know I would have ever done it without that dividend. So I appreciate that opportunity. So here, uh, so in my other life, you know, I'm a, a, an excavation contractor and dirt business. And a number of years ago, I went out and did some site work for a gentleman who was a custodian at a school, young family, wife did the exact same thing I was doing. He used his permanent fund dividends to buy that chunk of land, pay for the door work, get out. He's got a nice house. He's, he's worked hard. He called me the other day. He was really concerned. He told me how much that permanent fund dividend meant to him. And, and he's a perfect example of, of somebody who took that and put it to really good use, mm -hmm. built, built himself a house for his family. Not big, not you know extravagant, but nice, comfortable, uh, pretty much debt-free over years using that permanent. So the perfect use of that. So that makes you struggle when you see that really good use for that but i also reflect on him and i think geez what if we had to cut education funding right but we're going to pay out poll permanent fund dividends and now this man just lost his job because the schools are cutting back on custodians or sharing the deal so what's worse for that gentleman to lose his permanent fund dividend or lose his job you, you know and so that's well, not even a question i mean of course well of course the job is worse that know? that in my opinion that's worse but I wonder if people really measure that. I wonder if they really see the impacts of that. And I do know at times when I was on the local uh, school boards or school district or borough assemblies and uh, an education funding got cut a little bit, first thing I do is start consolidating the positions. And we were laying off custodians and and, uh, and teachers and, you know, but uh, and that type of stuff. So for me, uh, I'm definitely not liberal. I'm very conservative, you know, 
But I think that's the lesser of the evils to maintain your job and lose your dividends. You know, I mean, I mean, long term, you still got well, I that think, job. I think the other argument is, you know, you, you can make a big payout today. And people are going to get the money, yeah. But eventually, that's not going to be sustainable. And then, 10, 20, 30 years down the road, yeah. those people aren't going to, you know, maybe have have a, as big of a div- or any dividend. You know, it's it's interesting, and and everybody doesn't get to have privy to these conversations. But so here in Juneau, there are three gentlemen that I, I've met in my time here uh, who were budget directors for Governor Hammond, who were for Governor Hammond, were personal friends with Governor Hammond up to sounds the like day. The, sounds like the three wise men or something. Well, <laughs> they truly are, truly are, uh, very experienced, very knowledgeable. And uh, you know, and 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 one of them told me he was uh, he was Hammond's uh, first budget director, and the other guy was uh, the budget director in the last four years of the Hammond administration. I believe budget directors was their titles. But anyway, them guys were part of that conversation, part of the creation of that. And they, you know, and then uh, they told me the intent. I mean, one of them said he was holding Hammond's hand when he died, and he he had come to be embarrassed by the size of the dividend. He only envisioned a three hundred dollar dividend. His original first vision was a community dividend. It wasn't an individual dividend. I right, mean, yeah, was, to the community. Yeah, yeah you know, so, about that. so it's interesting, you know, but the reality is uh, Hammond had a great vision. The Sovereign Wealth Fund's a great idea. Uh, the use of that is, is where we differ, you know, and so uh, things evolve over time. Hammond was a man with an idea, with a plan, you know, and that's and that's what it was, and things have, have moved on. There's a, uh, there's a video somebody shared with me um, a few weeks ago, and it was a 15-minute, like a capital thing in 1980 and it was an interview of Hammond and other yeah, people sure. and he, he very clearly said what his plan was we have yeah. to put this money away because one day we're not going to have as much money from resources yeah. to rely on yeah. and and it was I mean it wasn't even ambiguous and the other funny part about the video was they, they interviewed Dick Randolph representative mm-hmm. Randolph at the time yeah, libertarian yeah, who's now yeah. Dunlavey my governor Dunlavey's one of his Advisor, constitutional advisors, advisors yeah. and and they I, I swear to God I swear to God Gary they asked him they said um, well, what, what happens, you know, because he was fighting for the no income tax and the, the yeah. dividend. And so what's going to happen when the oil money runs out? And he goes, I don't know. I'll be dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what the guy said. Good, good answer. Yeah. So, you know, and, and you know, and, and it's interesting when you when you just go through the archives. And I, last year I read a letter, a handwritten letter from then Governor, uh, Governor Jay Hammond to then Senator Clem Tillian. And he said, I want to be perfectly clear. My vision for them dividends is is a. Uh, I think it was 50% to uh, support services, 25% to the legislature, and 25% to be paid out to dividends, you know. So then you have some people talk about the governor's 50-50 plan. But read the handwritten letter. The 50-50 plan wasn't 50% distribution, you know. And, oh. uh, and it's in it's in the archives over here, you know. And uh, so so you definitely know the intent. Hammond, Hammond was smart, and I think the intents got skewed over the years. I think I think and, the... the and, uh, for me, I think the... the frustration is it's because of politics the answer is to me it's so easy it's just so simple use the earnings from the dividend plus the oil tax revenue and everything's government's paid for yeah and there's no yeah. taxes yeah yeah it just seems it's like it's right in front of you but right. because of all these right. factors we just discussed yeah. it, can't, it can't be but that's the i think that's the easy that's the silver bullet you know we do it we do it. i mean geez we live in the greatest state in the union you know and uh and, and we got and so every day we don't have an income tax. I call it a blessing. I mean, that's a gift. I, you know, I'm, I'm good with that. Look at California. If, if we're smart with that, you know. I mean, once you put a tax in place, then all you're doing is changing the rate. And that rate will mm-hmm. just keep going. You'll never quit, you know. I mean, we have a unique opportunity. If we could if we could discipline ourselves and we could grow that permanent fund, permanent fund, the corpus, the sovereign wealth fund, whatever you want to call it. If you could grow that from the current $60 billion it is today 
to 100 billion, 100, 120 billion, and draw three or four percent, we wouldn't be having these conversations. We wouldn't be having an income tax. You know, the number is still small. It's relatively small, sixty billion dollars. It, it could be if we disciplined ourselves. It could have been two hundred billion. Imagine, 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 what it would, imagine what it would be if we never handed out the dividend. I mean, the big dividends for all those and, years. And, and you know, the much, others, much bigger. The other thing is that people don't realize. You know, is it the best use of the state's resources when you send sixty thousand checks annually out of state? We mail over sixty thousand checks annually to out of state residents. A ten-year study done from nineteen ninety-six to two thousand six showed that eighty percent of all them checks we mail out of state never them residents never returned to the state. You know, is that the best use of our of our resources? You know, uh, we no longer have capital projects because we have no money to fund them. And them capital projects, what employs hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of people around this state. Yeah, I mean, the budget, the big, years ago, the big $2 billion capital budgets, now we're down to hundred and some million. Yeah, exactly. We're down to, yeah, hundred million, you know, and, and that's just matching dollars for uh, federal dollars mm -hmm. in, the, in the highway department. So, you know, I... When we talk a lot about education, the problems in education, we talk about the problems, the opioid crisis, and we talk about crime, and everybody's pointing fingers at 91 and SB 26 and whatever other legislation has passed. The whole problem is is in our, our society and our economics. When people are working and have optimism and an opportunity to do well and not worry about paying the bills or worry about the car breaking or being stolen, you don't, you know, when you have a great economy and everybody has an opportunity and they're happy, uh, crime goes down, education goes up, the social issues kind of fall away, and in that comes savings with all of that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and you just end up with no, a better, I, you I, end up with a better society. I think and, you're uh, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think you know, you know when you give people hope and a yep. job and you know something to do, and yep. the whole outlook yep. on life changes. Yeah, but you know, it's for politicians, it, it, it's so much easier to do the popular thing. Than the tough thing. I mean, it's just the reality of it is. You know, it's a, a popular thing. It's, it's well, typically I, I, never, never easy. It's I'd, never I'd, easy. I'd say you're doing the tough thing right now by, by your, well, your, you know, parting from the Republicans. So yeah, we get yeah. That's kind it'll, of a tough issue. But I mean, you know, I well, mean, it's probably hard. I mean, I think a lot of people secretly would would want to do that, but they they can't they can't yeah pull the trigger on it. And you, you know, you know you it, did. it just simply has to happen. It simply has to happen. It has always happened. You know, we need to work together, get this thing done. People's work's got to get done. People, you know, I have legislators say, already worried about the next election, two years down the road, already worried about that. Well, I can't do that because they <laughs> won't elect me. I said, they're going to unelect you if you don't do something, period. That's not what you got to worry about, you know. Uh, well, I mean, if you lose, you get a job, you know, find something else to do. Well, I mean, you That's, shouldn't. It, it, you shouldn't rely on If you're worried this, you know? about the election now, you're here for the wrong reason. Yep. You're here for the wrong reason. You know, that shouldn't even be a topic of conversation for another year and a half, you know. But uh, but that's that's where we are. Oh, I I agree with you. And, you know, and and so, it's 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 tough. It it's uh, I I think I'm I'm blessed in that sense that uh, I'll worry about that next election when I get within about three months of it. But uh, right now, you this know, last one you were totally you didn't even have an opponent, did you? I didn't have an opponent. I didn't have any opposition. You know, but that's uh, the, that's the best election. <laughs> and, and, yeah, the yeah best, oh, it's a great campaign. You know, <laughs> the problem is you don't know how hard to campaign, right? You know, I mean, how much do you get out there? You don't have an opponent. If you got an opponent, you know what you got to do. Well, you don't have a campaign. You want people to know you still want it's the probably job, even, right? It's probably so, even more difficult to raise any money. Oh, you people can't say raise, what do you what do you want you money for? You can't raise no money. There's no doubt about that. Nobody's <laughs> interested in giving you any money at that point. <laughs> But uh, but you want people to know you still want the job and you're interested. But uh, but you don't uh, you don't want to go out there and overshadow in campaign spending and advertising for people who are who have an appointment. Yeah, and no, they, that's you true. Know, and, 
And so you. So you do you still? Were you still knocking doors and? No, I didn't knock doors, but I do as much public stuff as I could, the chamber stuff, the luncheons and where's things. Your, and where's your where's your district actually? Uh, it's uh, Kenai it. Peninsula, Solatna Kenai, the two cities predominantly are mine. Uh, Solatna Kenai, and then uh, District Twenty Nine and Thirty One both both surround me on the on the outskirts. So, so who's uh, senator for that? That's uh, Peter Machicki. Senator, right? okay, Senator Machicki. Senator Machicki. He had an interesting yeah. one, huh? That he had that a primary. very interesting. Ooh. He had a very interesting race. The primary they, race, you know. They, they said nobody. The joke was no, nobody. Nobody's run harder in a write-in campaign than Peter <laughs> Machicki. <laughs> the funniest thing I saw something on Twitter where yeah. uh, it was in like September, October. Yeah. There was a mar- some kind of marathon going on in the peninsula. Oh yeah. And this guy posts a picture, and and uh, he goes, "I was running the marathon, and at mile." 22 peter machicki handed me some water he, he must really want to win <laughs> he's working you know, really I, hard i think i saw that post yeah. i think i saw that it's like, post, it's like yeah. the guy's like he has yeah. an opponent he's handing yeah. out water at yeah, the yeah. marathon yeah. you know pretty he, funny. Uh, uh senator had a had a he had a good outcome in the general election he had good turnout yeah i think some people thought he was i mean I, I just told people i said there's no way he can lose that i mean the person yeah. you need to have so much money yeah. so much money to win a write-in i mean it's, yeah. it's almost yeah the lisa yeah. murkowski thing was very, very, very well yeah. funded, and there was a lot of other factors. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I'll just tell you that uh, I talked to the senator before the primary, and he was he expressed some concerns, and I don't know if he expressed concerns, but he called me, and he said, "What What do you think of my race?" And I said, "I think you should just relax and give it a break." I said, "You know, we've been to the debates. The, the, the man, your challenger, his only issue is he didn't get his permanent fund dividend. Yeah, right. right. The only thing he could talk about, everything else said, when he was asked a question about any other policy issue, he didn't he didn't know. He wasn't wasn't familiar with it. I said, just relax. I said, you know, the guy's just a single issue candidate, and uh, and I said, don't you know, don't just don't don't attack him. Just relax, and you you shouldn't." Then we got to primary night, and man, the way that thing went, and I, I felt bad. I felt bad that I told you to relax. I said, chill out here, you know, don't don't go he, on the tack or do nothing. And then, and I'm just floored. I hadn't, I, I couldn't see it coming. I had no idea. So yeah, I, I was pretty puzzled by it. So I, I have um, some folks I know down there. I don't, I don't have a great deal of connections down there, but I do know Republicans and people. And I started calling around, and um, the, the number one thing I heard was. People said that they voted. Some people said they voted for the other guy because they wanted to send Peter a little message because they were a little bit frustrated with sometimes the way he acted with them. And then they said, "What have we done?" You know, they, I, they I, said, "What I, have we I done?" I heard that same thing. I heard that same thing. Yeah, people said, "Ah, send him a message." You know, I don't know if anybody knew how many people were sending him a message. I don't think, I don't think the word that's the memo didn't get out. Yeah, of the message. It did not. They weren't talking amongst themselves. So, yeah, yeah I always remember we did Election Central. We, we saw the results come in, and I said. I said, I looked over, I said, this can't be right. I said, because yeah. we thought he was going to get, I mean, if you look at his previous elections, he's always done yeah. very well. Yeah. So, and, you know, it was like, well, it was a handful of votes. Right, right. So, well, I wanted to, I, thank you for, I know you're a busy guy. Yeah. I wanted to thank you for having me in your yeah. office. Nice, nice office here. I, I like it, it is. It's a little small, but it, it's got a nice view and it's up here and enjoy it. So, so you're you know? still here until they figure out the organization. We're right? all, we're all wherever we can find a hole until the organization gets figured out. So. You know, but I, I want to just wrap this up here, Jeff. Thank you for coming by and doing what you're doing, and hope people listen to these podcasts oh, they, and, yeah, and they, a little bit more informed it's, about it's, the issues. And uh, and I, I just I want to kind of reiterate the fact that uh, this coalition is the only only avenue forward for this house to succeed, regardless of party affiliation. You know, this coalition idea, neither side 
Republicans or Democrats will succeed without a coalition. You know, and the way this coalition is going to work is going to be a level playing field, no stack decks, not for either side. It's the only way it will work. It's the only way they'll come together. It, it simply has to happen. And there's probably nothing more important than for this house to finally start performing and succeed, regardless of party affiliation. People right. are old that. I mean, I think you probably hold more cards and. Almost anybody in the in the house right now. So. Well, I think I hold no cards. I mean, I'm, uh, a, I'm a one-man show all by myself, you know, and uh, I have no bargaining power. I have no stroke. One guy doesn't get anything done. All I was able to do was generate the conversations. I mean, in the reality of it is, you know, I mean, they could throw me under the bus right now, and there's nothing I could do about it, you know. Uh, but I, I do refuse to join a, a an organization I think is doomed. So depends on how a coalition is put together. Uh, if they do it right, if they're committed to the coalition, you can't get in a hurry. You can't put a bad one together. It serves you no purpose. You know, it's got to it's got to be with the belief that this is what's needed and we need to make it work. Yeah, it's just like it's like chasing bad. It's like chasing bad money with good. You know, you yeah keep doing something and you yeah. end up in no, worse no. shape. The, the people got to acknowledge. You know, you don't put it together for the sake of putting it together. You you put it together the right way with people that are committed to making it work and acknowledge that. So. Uh, I just thought about something. I don't know why I thought about this, but I thought about something real funny. I'll just tell you, it's kind of not really related, but speaking of money, somebody said, loan somebody money and you control them. Loan somebody too much money and they control you. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of. Uh, very true. Sometimes in politics. Yeah. Well, yeah. I want to thank you again. I know you the podcast do well. Um, they're, it's growing. I have a little tool I can see the downloads. And oh, good. I did one with John Harris good, good. Uh, a few weeks ago, and he's got a lot of... A lot of you. We talked about the co, you know the organizational stuff. So sure, uh, former yeah. speaker. So I want to thank you for doing this. Yeah. And I know it's a busy day tomorrow, and tonight's probably the last night you can do anything until the session. Fundraising. The big parties are tonight, right? The fundraisers. Yeah, the fundraising. I had the legislative meet and greet over at Terry Miller Building here from five to seven. Uh, all the legislators and staff and commissioners and uh, administrative people. And uh, how about people like me? I think, I think you're probably I, welcome. I mean, you do got press pass. Yeah, I, I'm getting I'm getting a press huh? pass later today. I have to yeah, pick yeah, it up. I'm surprised. Yeah, yeah. I was I was fifty fifty on the fence if I was going to get it. You know, so. I, I, th I believe it's open to the public. I mean, it should be. That's what we are, public servants. So it should be open to public. And if you don't get in the door, well, you I haven't spent. Me, I haven't in the door. You give me a call. I haven't yeah. spent much time. That's that's good. I, I'll put you on, on the speed dial. I haven't spent much time in the building, but I've been walking around a little bit, and it's yeah. nice. It's kind of nice being in here. It's a really yeah. Yeah. special place. So it is. It is a special place. A good policy. Good policy decisions made. Uh, hopefully, most of the time, occasionally they don't work out as we intend, but we have the opportunity maybe, to fix them when they don't. Maybe, maybe I'll, maybe I'll have a room here one day in the there you go in the future. There huh? you go. <laughs> maybe we'll be neighbors. Never rule it out. Never rule <laughs> All right, it out. Representative Knopf, thanks again for Thank doing you. the podcast. Thank you. Uh, if you guys want to listen to it, um, have any ideas for future podcasts or you want to do one, just get a hold of me, and uh, we'll see you guys next time on Landmine Radio. Landmine.